This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss with Harvard and Mass Generals Dr. Renee Salas, the recently published 2019 Lancet Countdown on Health and Climate Change, subtitled, Ensuring that the Health of Children Born Today is Not Defined by a Changing Climate. Dr. Salas, welcome back to the program. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Dr. Salas is the lead author of the Countdown's U.S. Policy Brief, Listeners may recall this past June, I discussed with Dr. Salas climate crisis-related childhood health effects. Her bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. On background, for my last podcast this year, it's appropriate return to the climate crisis. On one hand, we have a rapidly collapsing biosphere upon which all life depends, due largely to the fact, as the Countdown Report notes, carbon intensity of the energy system has remained unchanged since 1990. On the other hand, we have an administration arguing in the Juliana case, filed in 2015 by 21 children and young adults claiming a constitutional right to a survivable climate, and I quote, plaintiff's purported right to a climate system capable of sustaining human life has no basis whatsoever in this nation's history or tradition and is therefore not a fundamental right, close quote. The 2019 Lancet Countdown Report released in mid-November identifies 41 indicators in five domains, climate change impacts, exposures and vulnerability, adaptation planning and resilience for health, mitigation actions and health co-benefits, economics and finance, and public and political engagement. We will focus this discussion on the first three domains. For the purposes of time efficiency, I did provide or draft some comments about the last two domains. I'll just post them these comments or summary comments in the last two domains with um, the podcast uh, when it's posted. So um, with that, again, I welcome Dr. Renee Salas. Uh, listeners may recall that a week, a year ago this week, I interviewed Dr. Jeremy Hess on the 2018 Lancet Countdown Report. And finally, this is my 12th climate crisis-related interview. So with that, Dr. Salas, let's go right into this, meaning the health effects The report bluntly states, quote-unquote, the life of every child born today will be profoundly affected by climate change. What does the first domain, health impacts, tell us? Yes. Well, thank you for that uh, wonderful introduction, and thank you for all of your work and advocacy around this um, critical subject. Um, You know, as an emergency medicine doctor, I'm trained to respond to emergencies, and it's become increasingly clear that the climate crisis is one of the most pressing health emergencies uh, that this country faces today. And, you know, the focus this year on how it's impacting uh, youth and children um, is is critically uh, important. And I think it makes clear that this Lancet countdown, in addition to this U.S. brief, really adds to the mountain of existing evidence you know, that confirms the reality that the face of climate change isn't icebergs or polar bears, but the faces of our children, our aging parents, or less fortunate neighbors. And if that isn't enough, then your own. So, you know, the, the U.S. policy brief this year really focused on um, three key things. 
Um, and it was really showing that, you know, heat is having broad um, health impacts um, and harming health today. This isn't a future health threat. It's, uh, you know, harming my patients um, even here in Boston um, now. And I think, you know, one of the key things was showing that older adults um, are having an increased exposure to heat waves. And for me, you know, this statistic isn't um, just a number, but it's, it's patients uh, who have stories and families and loved ones. Um, you know, there's a, a, a patient that I saw this July um, here in Boston that, um, you know, just will always stay with me. And it's, um, he was an elderly man and his, his wife uh, called 911 because he was uh, being confused. And the ambulance crew, who I knew well, um, you know, they said that when they got there and opened the door um, of their apartment building, which was on the top floor, and it was um, older uh, housing, um, that there was just a wave of heat that hit them as if they were, you know, in the middle of the Sahara Desert. And when they walked in, there was one window that was open, and they didn't have any air conditioning. Um, and so they brought this gentleman, you know, to my emergency department. And when we took his uh, temperature, his core temperature was found to be 106 degrees Fahrenheit, um, which meant that, you know, he was diagnosed with heat stroke, which is the deadly form of heat illness. And, you know, we were able to rapidly cool him and save him. But I think he, you know, I bring the story up because it really highlights a key theme um, of the brief that we really tried to highlight, and that's that that climate change is disproportionately impacting the most vulnerable, and that includes, mm -hmm. you know, children, which is why the youth are marching in the streets, um, elderly, um, as you know, the story highlights, but, you know, also, again, the, the poor, um, you know, certain racial minorities, um, and, you know, we have to recognize that action on uh, climate change is actually action to improve health. So, and the other piece that this, you know, health impact that we highlight from the brief is the fact that people are dying from, from air pollution. And that in 2016, um, we found that over 64,000 premature deaths in the U.S. are attributed uh, to air pollution, which is uh, formed by the burning of fossil fuels. And this is the same, uh, you know, burning of fossil fuels. It's driving the climate crisis. And so action uh, to um, re reduce our reliance on fossil fuels will not only decrease air pollution, um, but also, you know, help to, to minimize this catastrophic threat of, of climate change. Okay, thank you. Let's, uh, let me just stay with air pollution, uh, since that was one of my uh, FOB points or questions. And that is, um, this is um, ambient air pollution, particularly fine particulate matter. Uh, you noted deaths in the U.S. worldwide. The report notes 7 million premature deaths annually. More than 90% of children are exposed to uh, particulate matter, uh, and these are concentrations that are above uh, World Health Organization guidelines. Uh, and most, as you know, most of these uh, PM particulate matter exposures result from anthropogenic uh, activities, of course, burning uh, fossil fuels. So this is particularly problematic for children with asthma, and in the elderly with uh, COPD, correct? Correct. Yeah, there are um, you know certain populations like the ones you noted that are going to be um, have increased um, health uh, harms um, from air pollution, um, and you know that that seven million uh, people dying a year from air pollution um, that the the WHO uses you know is such a startling fact because if you think about if that 
7 million uh, people, uh, individuals a year died was an infectious disease. Um, you know, we would have, we would have cured it at, um, at this point. And the fact is we have the cure, you know, that's uh, one of the hardest things for me as a doctor is to, you know, see a patient for uh, present with something that I can't either cure them or help relieve their pain or suffering. Um, and thankfully for the climate crisis, we have the treatments. Um, and for air pollution, we have the treatments. Um, we have the technologies we need, and they're increasingly price competitive. Um, and so we need to, you know, be able to, um, you know, reduce this to 7 million um, individuals a year, because to me that is uh, just a fact that uh, keeps me up at night. Well, speaking of we have the technology, part of this uh, problem is, and I would have noted this, fossil fuel subsidies, as the report notes, increased to $427 billion in 2018, or 50% higher than in 2016. Let me just note about heat exposure relative to children. The report just states, as a fact, quote, unquote, a child born today will experience a world that is more than four degrees warmer than the pre-industrial average. Let's uh, spend a minute or two, if you can make comment on uh, the issue of climate-sensitive infectious diseases. Of course, most people think immediately of uh, malaria worldwide, but of course, dengue fever and any number of others. Correct. Uh, You know, we know that uh, certain um, vectors like mosquitoes or ticks um, that that can um, uh, transmit uh, infectious diseases, um, like the ones you've mentioned, you know, especially Lyme disease is is one that I see uh, commonly here in um, the Northeast. Uh, that these are um, increasing. Um, and so we have to think about, you know, kind of multiple threads around that. I mean, one is the fact that, you know, more people are, um, you know, potentially being exposed given that these uh, vectors or insects um, are living in, in more places, living longer. Um, but also the fact, too, that we need to make sure we educate our uh, health professionals um, about some of these emerging infectious diseases that are arriving um, in areas where they typically haven't seen them. Um, and so how do we make sure that we uh, continue to um, educate uh, clinicians on the front lines um, in order to continue to protect health um, and ensure that we have appropriate surveillance systems um, in place to um, transmit that information uh, in a timely fashion? Good point. So the classic dengue fever in Florida and moving north. Let me ask relative to uh, domain one, because I think this subject gets under-discussed, under-appreciated, and that Mm -hmm. is uh, domain uh, one, again, discusses crisis effects on food security and nutrition. Mm -hmm. So if you Mm -hmm. can make comment about not only, of course, the effects of drought on growing and harvesting foodstuffs, but nutritional value uh, is declining as a result of, of warming atmospheric temperatures. Yes, it's a great point, and uh, one that you know we need to think about here in the U.S. In addition to um, obviously has even more profound impacts uh, globally, and you know these different populations, some around the globe who have already been on a, a bit of a nutritional margin and have been struggling to make sure that they have you know nutritious foods for themselves and their families are facing a world where it's becoming, you know, harder to be able to um, be able to uh, provide uh, that food. So, I mean, one, you know, you think about, as you highlighted, that, you know, food that's grown um, and crops, you know, they have decreased mineral content. 
um, uh, with increased carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Um, and, you know, areas with the, the extremes of precipitation. So now you're having areas that are having extreme droughts or floods. Um, so even if, you know, you're able to, to grow these, these crops, um, they um, are at increased risk um, for that crop uh, production to be able to be lost um, through one of these, you know, catastrophic um, uh, you know, extremes of precipitation. So, yeah, so unfortunately it's sort of becoming that perfect storm of, you know, becoming harder to grow, and then when you're able to grow, it's, it's even less nutritious. Right, no no pun intended. Before I leave uh, domain one, relative to the elderly, and I'm reading again from the report, populations aged 65 years and older are particularly vulnerable to the health effects of climate change and especially extreme heat. So again, this point uh, only a clinician would appreciate, and that is the elderly have a more difficult time thermoregulating. What does that mean, and why is that? Yeah, so um, as we age, um, our bodies become, um, and systems that have been in place um, to kind of help us regulate our heat systems can sometimes not work um, as effectively as, as they used to. And, you know, unfortunately, as people age, they also, um, you know, tend to have other medical problems that require them to be on medications, um, for example. And we know that certain medications also make it harder for bodies to be able to um, adapt to extremes of temperature and, and extreme heat. Um, and so I think it's, you know, something with a growing recognition to not only empower patients to, to talk to your doctor um, about whether, you know, if you're heading into a, a, a season of heat waves um, and you live in an area where that's an especially a, a big issue is, you know, making sure that you um, are on a medication that's safe um, and maybe you there's another medication that will still give you the same benefits um, from a health standpoint, but has a, a lower risk profile um, for making you more at risk for heat illness. Um, and I think the last point to that too is is also recognizing that we think you know, when we think about heat waves and when people are getting sick from heat, we often think about really you know high temperatures like 105 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, but actually evidence that we present in the U.S. brief um, highlights a study that was released this year that shows that depending on the region uh, where you live, um, especially if you live in a region that is not used to having as hot um, of temperatures, that people are actually being hospitalized and getting sick um, at lower temperatures. So, for example, in the West, you know, it was showed that the peak of hospitalizations from heat actually started around 80 degrees Fahrenheit in the West and Northwest, whereas in the south, it was, you know, reached a peak around 105 mm -hmm. uh, degrees Fahrenheit. So, again, just acknowledging that, you know, it's it's not always these these high, high temperatures where heat alerts go out. Um, and that was the other piece is it showed, you know, the study showed that when the heat alerts often were going out after people were already being harmed by um, by heat. And, you know, people are making changes as a result of that. But I think this you know, also highlights a key fact of how we need more research around this um, to better inform um, our decisions uh, about how to best protect health. Thank you. We could get into, relative to heat, we can get into discussions about wet bulb temperature versus other ways of measuring temperature, <laughs> but we'll, we'll leave that aside for a moment. Let's go, to, yeah, let, let's, let's go to domain number two, adaptation, planning, and resilience. The res report states, and again, I'm quoting, health systems will be placed under increasing and overwhelming pressure. And adaptation to climate change is essential. 
Nevertheless, this section concludes the pace of the adaptation response from the health community remains slow. So my question, obviously, is what's your sense of the U.S. healthcare industry's efforts at adaptation? I ask this question particularly because there was a recent essential hospital survey uh, that was out in November, and it showed 75% mm. of respondents made no formal commitment to climate adaptation, and over half stated they would require a financial benefit as motivation to engage in adaptation. Um, mm. I'll also note, uh, as you're well aware, per the 19 countdown report, the healthcare industry worldwide emits 2,200 metric tons of CO2 equivalents, or it did in 2016, and the U.S. healthcare industry's um, portion of that is approximately a third, not too surprising there. Um, so not only, by way of saying, not only is uh, adaptation been slow, but um, the industry is fueling uh, no pun, uh, the problem. But again, back to your sense, and or perhaps maybe better, how might the U.S. healthcare industry get more aggressive uh, in adapting? Yeah, I mean, first off is uh, just recognizing uh, the, the fact that you mentioned, which is that as, you know, hospitals are um, utilizing um, fossil fuels, um, and other types of um, contributions to greenhouse gases that, in fact, you know, that means the hospital is contributing to the illness um, that is bringing people to their very doorstep. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's, you know, critical for, for hospitals just to recognize that connection. And I think there's a big opportunity uh, and a growing recognition of these connections um, and really the health benefits that can be made by um, reducing greenhouse gases and that, um, you know, that is the prescription um, to improve health and protect lives moving forward in, in a world uh, with climate change. Um, and then I think, you know, but, you know, once that connection is made, I mean, I think one, you know, the mitigation piece um, that uh, health healthcare systems need to make is, is critical. But, you know, as much as, as I wish that, you know, I could snap my fingers right now and somehow stop all greenhouse gases and, you know, we can have a wonderful conversation on this podcast about something else, mm-hmm. um, that, you know, we're still on track, right, to have um, health harms um, from the existing um, greenhouse gas emissions um, that uh, are currently in place. And so, I mean, it's, it's equally critical for us to identify who the vulnerable individuals are um, within our communities because, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, we know that uh, the climate crisis is not an equal opportunity harmer. Um, and so we know that there are certain populations that are being harmed um, with increased frequency. Um, and because of the geographic variability in the U.S. Um, for how climate change is harming health, um, you know, with different, you know, again, whether it's wildfires, you know, versus uh, certain infectious diseases, you know, you have to recognize what your uh, local um, harms are um, and understand that within your community and within your city. So we really need to develop an infrastructure for evidence-based adaptation, uh, which is using, you know, data uh, and other, uh, you know, modalities in order to uh, work closely with public health systems um, to identify the most vulnerable and then, you know, clearly implement uh, solutions that are studied and improved upon um, so that way we can figure out the best ways to protect health. Um, and that's a huge area of opportunity um, for the medical and, and public health communities. Uh, moving forward. Uh, thank you again. So it's, it's not as if we don't have enough challenges with a rapidly aging population. You can uh, add, uh, th- this compounds it. Um, 
relative to the industry's own contribution, this brings a whole new meaning to the phrase supply creates its own demand, which mm. any, every econ freshman would know uh, <laughs> that, uh, that reality. Let me stay with um, beyond the, the industry, the profession, clinicians, and I'll, I'll rephrase this question. You know, the general question is what more can the profession do? But let me just ask, within your specialty field, uh, mm. ED, what's the discussion since you're literally front line here, not surprisingly. Mm-hmm. So what's the discussion within uh, the professional associations? Yeah, so I, I had the sort of honor and privilege of, of starting the first um, climate change and health interest group within our specialty through the Society of Academic Emergency Medicine. Congratulations. Uh, so that was, thank you. Yeah, so that was started, uh, I guess, about two years ago now. Um, and so, you know, I think that, you know, that just, uh, goes to show that, you know, there's, a, there is a growing recognition and, um, we have, um, I, I think at this point, I'm sure we have much more than, than what my last statistic is because I, I stepped down from chair and passed the, the torch along to other very capable individuals. Um, but we had like over 200 plus, you know, people who had joined the interest group, at least at the, the last I knew of the statistics. And, you know, I think it just goes to show that there's people who are increasingly recognizing these, these implications. And as you said, I mean, we truly are a specialty on the front line. Um, and the Society of Academic Emergency Medicine also um, signed on to the um, amicus brief for the Juliana uh, versus U.S. case. Um, and so it's, you know, it's as with, I think, all specialties, you know, I think there's this ongoing and ever uh, increasing discussion um, and opportunity um, for those of us kind of within the, our respective specialties to engage with our leadership and engage with our national societies um, and really, you know, show them um, the fact that, uh, you know, we need to de- bring together our collective voices um, and action um, in order to tackle this problem together because we're stronger together and um, so we need to come together not only as specialties but then as all specialties kind of coming together as a health profession. Okay, thank you. My last question goes to your having just been in Madrid, but before I go to that, I do want to make just one uh, comment and again reading from the report, I think this is worth mentioning or noting, 2018 ranked second on record as having the most suitable conditions for the transmission of diarrheal diseases and wound mm. infections from Vibrio bacteria, and nine of the past 10 most suitable years for the transmission of dengue, as they noted, have occurred since 2000. So uh, again, uh, you attended, uh, this is the COP25, this is the UN's COPS Conference of the Parties meeting for the UN's Framework Convention on Climate Change. And this was the two-plus-week uh, meeting in Madrid. So I have to ask, I'd be remiss if not, what was the con- what was the purpose of COP, and what do you think will be its accomplishment? Yeah. So I mean, I think one of the big things that we, um, you know, all were advocating for uh, at COP uh, was to make sure that the nationally determined contribution, so as countries, you know, decided their, um, you know, commitments uh, to the Paris Agreement, um, that they mention health. Um, and also from the fact that, you know, health co-benefits of climate actions, unfortunately, are kind of rarely reflected. Mm-hmm. Um, and only about a fifth of the NDCs actually mention health in the context of, you know, both mitigation and I think only about 10%, you know, actually mentioned, um, you know, health co-benefits. 
So, you know, I think that that, you know, just shows that there's an enormous opportunity on a global scale to make sure that, you know, we um, frame uh, the Paris Agreement as, you know, the the world's, um, you know, largest um, health agreement. And so heart, you know, health really needs to be placed at the heart of of all of the discussions. Um, And there's sort of a call from all of us kind of within the health community that we're there, um, that we really want COP26 um, to be one that focuses on health. I mean, I think that the growing momentum that has been happening kind of not only here within the U.S., but, you know, globally. And I was inspired by all of, uh, you know, the the health colleagues um, that I met from around the globe there as we all joined together in collective action, um, that I think that we are reaching this uh, tipping point where, you know, the recognition um, is going to just continue to accelerate. Um, And I hope COP26 will be, you know, a a COP that focuses on health and we can get more ministers of health there because as countries, you know, send their ministers of health, that very clearly sends the signal that they understand that, you know, the the Paris Agreement is is clearly an agreement um, that is going to improve health and save lives moving forward. You know, I, I really appreciate that answer because I was going to note under the fifth domain public and political engagement this statistic that in 2018 only 12% of healthcare companies referenced health in context of the climate crisis, and mm. even more so, this was consistent with media and government communication that also does not typically connect the climate crisis with health. I mean, I have to say that to me, I mean, if you just spent one day in public health you would immediately recognize this is just a public health nightmare more than possibly anything else. So uh, I really genuinely appreciate uh, that response. Uh, We're about at our time. I do want to note for listeners that, if anything, I found the introduction or the executive summary to the 19 Lancet Countdown Report uh, just exceptionally well done, uh, very substantive on the data and a good summary, a brief summary uh, thereof. So just as a, a closing out question, we now have to ask, where are you going with your research and work in this area, other than being bothered by myself? <laughs> I mean, I think the, the the question that I ask myself before developing any research uh, question um, is the fact of, of what is how is it going to move the needle? And so, mm-hmm. I mean, this this crisis is is far too urgent um, to do research solely for the sake of research, and so it either has to to move the policy conversation. You know, by informing, for example, economic costs um, from the health aspects, or it has to move, um, you know, the adaptation side, so directly inform kind of that evidence-based adaptation that I discussed. Um, and so that's kind of how all of the research is, is being framed moving forward, is how, you know, how is it going to directly translate um, to clear action that will move us towards the goal um, that we're all collectively working towards. Great. Thank you. So with that, uh, Renee, thank you uh, uh, so much. Uh, I hope you get a break or get some rest from your world travels with the holiday season upon us. So thank you again, and I hope we can stay in touch and keep up with this. Appreciate it. Yes, thank you. No, um, the pleasure's all mine, and, you know, I also have to just give, um, uh, you know, an additional thanks on for my side to the Global Lancet Canton team, too. I mean, I think, you know, as you had you know, mapped out. I mean, I think the executive summary is brilliant. Um, and it really shows, you know, that with every degree of warming that a, a child born today, you know, faces a future with their health and well-being. It's going to be, 
you know, increasingly harmed by these realities and dangers of a warming world. And it clearly lays out the, the two paths that we have, you know, um, and I love the way they go through the, um, you know, development of a child and, and really in highlights that we are at a fork in the road um, and we can move towards a future um, that is brighter um, and uh, creates a planet that we want to leave for our children um, and that the our children can have, you know, the health, well-being, and quality of life um, that we all want to give them. So um, I think that that, uh, again, that framing from them was amazing and um, really, you know, resonated a lot with the work that we did here on the U.S. Brief. So it was a collaborative effort um, and couldn't have done it without my entire team, including Jeremy Hess, um, who mm-hmm. was a senior author again. Um, and so, yeah, so we're looking forward to, to next steps as well and continuing to work with um, individuals like yourself who are helping to get the message out there. So thank you for all the work that you do. Thank you again. Take care. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.